Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. I'm excited today to have two guests on the program, my first podcast with two guests. With me today are Victoria Sanders from the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance and my colleague at RFF, Molly Robertson. Victoria and Molly are here today to talk about a study that the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, where Victoria works, or or NICHA as we'll refer to it, and RFF co-led and that involved several academic partners. And that study was an analysis of the impact of the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act's implementation on emissions and air quality in New York's disadvantaged communities. So we're going to learn more from Victoria and Molly about this Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, or the CLCPA, as we'll refer to it. But in short, the law, which passed in 2019, sets ambitious greenhouse gas emissions goals for the state. And at the same time, it centers justice and equity in its approach. Specifically, the law states that actions that are undertaken to reduce emissions must prioritize the safety and health of disadvantaged communities and prioritize the allocation of public investments in those communities. So it's really exciting that it does this, but of course, whenever a law is passed, the real devil in the details is in implementation. So this two-year study that we're going to talk about today that was led by RFF and NIJA looked at two approaches to implementation, one that was developed by a group of environmental justice stakeholders and one that represented options developed by a state climate advisory committee. And what they did is compare through a big modeling exercise the emissions and local air quality outcomes of these two alternative approaches. So Victoria and Molly are going to tell us all about the study, what they found, how the results matter for moving forward, and with this very groundbreaking state climate law. Stay with us. Hello, Victoria and Molly. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for having us. Yep. If you've listened to Resources Radio, you know we always start before we dive into the subject matter to learn a little bit about our guests. So I want to ask both of you to share just a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to work on environmental justice issues. So Victoria, can we start with you? Sure. So hi, Um, I have been an environmentalist for my whole life. It's something that's always been near and dear to my heart. And as a woman of color, as I grew older and learned more about environmentalism and how it impacts people of color and those who are the most vulnerable and disadvantaged, it became something that was really um, something that I wanted to focus on with my career. And so when the opportunity came to work for NIJA and work on these really important policies to help mitigate the impacts of climate change, it was a no-brainer. Hmm. Interesting. And Molly, how about you? How did you come to work on um, EJ issues and related environmental issues? Yeah, so my background is in public policy and specific public policy analysis. And I've always been really interested in thinking about the impacts of public policy and how specifically costs and benefits of policies are distributed among different people and communities. Um, Environmental justice is a really, really important space for this work where often data and analysis are not as readily available to 
determine how policies are affecting communities that are most vulnerable. So this was a really exciting project to get to work on and really excited to be working with Nija and Victoria, who have a wealth of expertise in this space. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. Um, so let's start with a little lesson on the CLCPA, as I refer to it. Victoria, can I ask you to kind of give us a crash course, some background on the law, what it does, and maybe go a little deeper than I just did in my introduction? Sure. So essentially, the CLCPA is a statewide emissions reduction set of requirements. So uh, in 2019, NIJA, as well as a number of the organizations that we work with across the state of New York, came together to help push for this legislation um, that really works towards getting more clean energy standards and minimum requirements for wind, solar, and battery development. Um, and this is due to the work of, you know, advocates. The law includes a critical protections for these disadvantaged communities that I've mentioned. Um, and it, it requires that a certain amount of the funding actually be allocated towards those disadvantaged communities and not just the funding, but also the benefits, which is a really big deal because a lot of these communities have historically been excluded from funding and the benefits that are happening due to policies to protect against things like environmental challenges. And so it's the CLCPA kind of works to uh, change that historical issue and protect communities moving forward. Uh, so we've been working really hard to see that implementation of those goals come to fruition. Yeah, that's great. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. So um, let me turn to you, Molly, and talk about this project in particular. So can you give us a little background on how it got started? What what the overall objective is or was of the project and who all was involved. And I'd especially like to hear more about how this collaboration between RFF and NIJA came about. Sure. So, you know, RFF obviously has a robust history of climate policy analysis, and we were interested in doing some work on the New York climate law and seeing how different implementations might impact different communities. But this was such a kind of first of its kind law with all of these protections that Victoria mentioned and legal requirements for, for how different communities needed to receive benefits. So we knew that we would need an environmental justice partner in this work. You know, we were pretty new in this space. And we started talking with folks in the New York State policy conversation and, uh, you know, like New York Renews, which is another advocacy group looking for a collaborator who could really help us think through some of the environmental justice implications of this law that we may not be thinking about yet or that we knew would need to be integrated into our analysis. And Nija's name kept coming up as the go-to experts on these issues. And we were really excited when the Nija team was not only willing to contribute their expertise on environmental justice policy and the CLCPA, but really engage with us as full partners in this work. So they've been involved from start to finish and everything from policy design to 
how the analysis should be done, how results need to be thought about, and what outcomes we need to be looking at. And they've also been leading a, a broader stakeholder engagement process related to this work um, to kind of help us think through policy design from a broader stakeholder engagement perspective, and also to help communicate our results and make sure folks know um, that this kind of analysis is happening and, and it's available. So that was really a, a starting point is to get this kind of expertise on the team so we could think about how different implementations uh, might look for the CLCPA. But the next step was really building out our modeling capabilities, uh, thinking about community impacts means getting spatially specific. And that's actually something that a lot of energy models and air quality models aren't well equipped to do. So we had to be selective in our approach and think about what models would fit this work best. Um, it meant that some sectors couldn't be represented well, um, but we were able to build out a team that covered energy emissions in three main sectors, uh, the transportation sector, the residential building sector, and the power sector. And we chose these models because they gave us spatially specific information about emissions changes in New York State. So that was a really important starting point for us to then move to air quality modeling, uh, where we have a really high quality, uh, high resolution air quality model coming out of Northeastern that gets us down to a four by four kilometer square grid for air quality estimates. Um, and then we're able to use those air quality estimates and in partnership with the team at the Yale School of Public Health to map air quality improvements to communities in New York and estimate differences among community types. So it's a really big modeling team. It's a cross-institutional effort, but it's kind of what you need to do when you're answering really big questions like this. So we're excited that we got to do it. Yeah, that's great. That's great background. It gives people a feel for, for the results, which we're going to talk about in a minute, where they come from. So Victoria, let me turn back to you for a minute. Um, so Nietzsche helped build the policy case for the suite of models to run, what the report refers to as the stakeholder case. And then results from that case were compared with the results from the Climate Action Council's policy case, which is kind of a state case, if you will, or from a state-appointed board. Um, so Nietzsche is a member network. I think you've already alluded to this, that you represent several other grassroots organizations. So the first question I want to ask is, how did you work across all these other groups to kind of develop the stakeholder policy case? How did that kind of engagement process work with all that, those folks? Yeah, so it was it was definitely an endeavor. <laughs> uh, so as you mentioned, we first reviewed the what they called the draft scoping plan, which was proposed by the Climate Action Council. And it had recommendations um, from the Climate Justice Working Group, which was the basically like a formally appointed group of environmental organizations and climate justice advocates and leaders um, who were able to make comments and provide expertise um, through the process so that the Climate Action Council's proposals were reflective of the community. So we are starting from a baseline of community engagement with the original process, which was wonderful. And then we were able to gather a wide range of environmental justice community groups that we at NIJA work with actively on a regular basis. And this included several of NIJA's member organizations, such as Uprose, El Puente, the Point CDC, Nos Quedamos, um, 
several of our members uh, we have actually 13 members across New York City. Um, so we were able to work with several of them. And we also worked with a variety of other organizations from our, the different coalitions we're part of, such as those within the New York Renews Coalition, which is a coalition of over 360 environmental justice, faith, labor, and community groups. Um, and they were actually a, a key force behind the adoption and implementation of the CLCPA. They continue to actively work on that. So we were able to bring together groups from all over the environmental um, advocacy realm and really bring them together for hosted workshops where we and RFF and the researchers were able to present our work, our discuss with them, see what their priorities were, make sure that we were really taking into account what the communities and all of the leaders in the space knew and, and believed would be most effective and were able to add that into our work and ensure that our stakeholder case was reflective of all of those um, those opinions, those beliefs, that expertise that they were able to provide to us. Yeah. I'm really glad you went through that and named some of those organizations. It just gives people a sense of how much hard work goes on behind the scenes, you know, to just make sure everybody's voice is heard and, and they have a seat at the table. So let me ask you a follow-up question then, Victoria. So how just to lay the groundwork here for the, the results we're going to talk about. How did the stakeholder case that you came up with that you all developed the, in this painstaking way you just described compare with the state's, the Climate Action Council's case? What are some of the key differences there between the two scenarios that you all are modeling? So as Molly mentioned earlier, the policy cases covered electricity, residential buildings, transportation. So there were a lot of differences, but a couple that were really important to the environmental justice stakeholders um, were that we needed to have a ban on new fossil fuel generation for electricity and for heating equipment and residential buildings, because, you know, the way we see it, we need to stop the the cause of the problem before we can start working towards solutions. Um, so we we also wanted to prohibit hydrogen and carbon capture utilization and storage. These are things that we consider to be false solutions. Um, and when we say false solutions, we essentially mean things that are prolonging our reliance on fossil fuels, even though they're purported to be solutions to ending our use of fossil fuels. So we try to focus on a variety of techniques and policies that we feel will actually um, decrease our reliance on fossil fuels. Um, so hydrogen and carbon capture utilization and storage are some examples of those false solutions that we're trying to avoid. And we also made efforts to target subsidies for technologies like electric vehicles and heat pumps, which we feel are more um, realistic ways to decrease our reliance on fossil fuels and um, made sure that when we were modeling those and planning how we wanted those policies to look, that they would generously be helping low-income households to make sure that they were getting their fair share of the benefits of the clean energy transition. Um, and one last thing to point out is our economy-wide policy, we priced out not only carbon, but also harmful coal pollutants such as sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxides that contribute to the poor local air quality, which a lot of disadvantaged communities already have higher um, rates of poor local air quality. And so we wanted to make sure that that was reflected in the policies to make sure that the improvements there were as outsized as the current vulnerabilities are. Gotcha. Okay. 
So with that background, Molly, tell us a little bit about the findings. An important part of that I want people to understand about the analysis is that you compare these two policy scenarios you're modeling to a business as usual scenario. So what will things look like on a trajectory given what's already in place? So maybe start first with like a big picture result. The CLCPA is designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So how do the two policy cases achieve those goals? Do you all see some pretty significant reductions from the business as usual case? And how do they compare with each other just on that basic uh, metric? Sure. So uh, it's both policy cases were designed to meet the legal requirements of the CLCPA in terms of emissions reductions. So both policy cases do significantly reduce emissions across the state relative to that business as usual that you mentioned um, in line with those legal requirements. But the stakeholder case goes above and beyond those requirements of the CLCPA. So the stakeholder case reduces emissions by 58% compared to the business as usual in 2030, uh, compared with that CAC case reducing emissions by about 34% relative to business as usual. So this is driven by those policy differences that Victoria mentioned, you know, more generous subsidies for electrification and a much more timely phase out of some of the fossil fuel uh, resources in the power sector and the residential sector. So both meet the CLCPA requirements in terms of emissions reductions, but that stakeholder case really goes above and beyond. Okay, yeah. And now let's talk about the local air pollution results because that was sort of a focus here. What happened to emissions and concentrations of PM2.5 particulate emissions? And the big question how were disadvantaged communities impacted under the two policy cases? Mm -hmm. So the air quality improvements really follow those uh, emissions differences I talked about. So the concentration changes or the air quality improvements in the stakeholder case are much greater than in the CAC case. So on average, uh, PM2.5 concentrations decreased by 0.18 micrograms per cubic meter in the stakeholder case, and only 0.03 micrograms per cubic meter in the CAC case. So those numbers seem small. So just for reference, um, good air quality is anything less than 12 micrograms per cubic meter. But these changes that we're talking about would still have a meaningful impact on health benefits. And I think that's really important to, to call out. It's also important to note that these changes are reductions on a 2030 baseline where air quality is already estimated to improve dramatically from what it is today. So while that 0.18 micrograms might seem small uh, in 2023 numbers, it may actually be a much bigger piece of the pie by 2030. Um, so that's important things to bear in mind when we're thinking about the context here. And in terms of your question about differences in communities, we actually found some interesting results there as well. Um, so the stakeholder case offers greater air quality improvements across all types of communities, both disadvantaged and non-disadvantaged communities alike. The improvements are greater in the stakeholder case, but they're actually particularly pronounced for a few subcategories of disadvantaged communities. So specifically communities that score highly on the state's socioeconomic vulnerability index, which considers things like income, uh, race, uh, 
and other variables like that. Those communities are much better off under the stakeholder case, and communities that have historically had the worst air quality are also much better off under the stakeholder case than the CAC case. So while the improvements overall are there, we also see some of these important community differences that we were trying to uncover in our research. Right. And I, I realized as you're talking, Molly, that we didn't really explain to folks how the definition of a disadvantaged community comes about. And you, you just said a little bit about it, but I believe there's a mapping tool that allows us to do that. Do you want to just say a couple of words about, about that, how that works? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, so we used the index that was developed by the state-appointed Climate Justice Working Group, which was tasked with basically identifying key indicators for community uh, vulnerabilities so that the state could define these disadvantaged communities it's mandated to protect in the CLCPA. Um, so there are dozens of indicators, um, and there's this index that ranks communities based on their relative vulnerability. So we looked both at the overall assignment of disadvantaged and non-disadvantaged according to this index. But we also dug a little bit into some of these key indicators to look at specific community types. And that's where I was talking about the socioeconomic vulnerability and then also those historic worst air quality communities, um, which are both part of the overall index. Right. Okay. Thanks for that. And just one last follow-up question on results. Um, so you talked about emissions, talked about air quality, but I know you all also went a little step further and looked at health impacts on different populations. And you hinted at that a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about those findings? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So unfortunately, we couldn't do a full health analysis in this project. It's something we really wanted to do and, and hoping that we can add to our, our team's capabilities in the future. Um, but we did want to provide some context to our report to help really highlight what these concentration improvements mean for avoiding negative health outcomes. Um, so we used analysis from previous research focused on population responses to air quality changes and we estimated that the stakeholder case could save hundreds of lives in 2030 alone uh, relative to the BAU case. And that's above and beyond all the climate benefits of the emissions reductions. This is just about the health benefits of air quality improvements. Uh, so that's really meaningful. And it also is important to note that air quality improvements don't affect all populations equally. There's some evidence to suggest that there are populations that are more vulnerable to deteriorating air quality and can benefit more from improved air quality. So for example, previous research shows that Black folks experience worse mortality impacts when air quality deteriorates. So when air quality improves, in Black communities, it can actually lead to more lives saved than when air quality improves in other communities. So it really shows the importance of looking at community-specific impacts and thinking about how benefits are distributed across a state as big as New York. Yeah, super interesting. So great. That's a great summary of the findings. Although, honestly, I mean, I've read this draft report and there's a lot in there. So <laughs> yeah, we can't possibly cover, <laughs> yeah, we can't cover everything in a 30 minute podcast. But so, uh, Victoria, let me turn back to you. I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what these research findings mean for your coalition's engagement on CLCPA implementation? What are your the next steps for for EJ advocates? 
Yeah, so obviously getting the CLCPA across the finish line to make sure that it was adopted was a huge achievement. But obviously, as we've discussed, there's so much more to be done and implementation is really complex and there's a lot of ways that it can be done. And we want to make sure that it's done in a way that is as protective to the most vulnerable as possible. Um, so at NIJA and with a lot of other EJ advocates, we are encouraging the adoption of policies that are ambitious and targeted to ensure that these disadvantaged communities are protected. So we're looking ahead at additional policies uh, coming forward. Particularly, New York Renews is doing a lot of this work, and Nija is a key member of that coalition. And so some of those policies include the Climate Jobs and Justice Package, which consists of legislation to help us reach CLCPA mandates, the Just Energy Transition Act, which is focusing on the transition of fossil fuel power generation by having state agencies do a one-year study to establish a phase-out plan for that fossil fuel use. Um, and also there's something called Cap Trade and Invest, which we want to emphasize direct emission reductions for EJ communities within. So all of these have the capacity to have a huge impact on the state and our efforts toward addressing the climate change crisis. And if we're able to do them well, we'll be able to, as we've discussed through this whole chat, um, make sure that disadvantaged communities are prioritized and protected, but also hopefully decreasing those historic injustices that they are still suffering from today. Yeah, that's great. So that tells us a little bit about next steps on on policy. Molly, let me turn to you about research follow-up. Is this a, a kind of a one-and-done project, or are there going to be more collaborations between RFF and Nietzsche and others around these issues? What's What's next? Well, I'm happy to say that the RFF Nija Dream Collab is still very much alive. <laughs> we have another round of analysis going on as we speak, still relevant to the CLCPA, where we're specifically going to be looking, as Victoria mentioned, about specific designs of the cap, trade, and invest program being designed by the state, thinking about how an economy-wide policy that covers all of these sectors can still protect disadvantaged communities and what policy designs may have positive impacts for communities. So we're still working together um, and we're, we're still pushing forward on this policy analysis. So keep an eye out for more. Yes, I definitely will. That's great. Um, well, we're running out of time here, folks. So we want to close our podcast with my favorite feature, our regular feature we call Top of the Stack, where we ask our guests to recommend a book or an article or a podcast, perhaps, or something, any good content, really, to our listeners. So I'm going to let you each have a go at this, starting with you, Molly. Do you have something you'd like to suggest to our listeners? Sure. So uh, I know that the Resources Radio podcast has a broad audience, so I'm going to recommend a podcast for folks who heard this and maybe are interested in learning a little bit more about environmental justice issues. The podcast Broken Ground was one that I listened to when I first got started in this space. It covers environmental justice stories, mostly in the South, but it has really good kind of detailed reporting and coverage about issues um, and environmental justice communities and advocacy. Uh, one of the recent ones that I thought was really interesting was talking about 
media and journalism and environmental justice issues and how community perspectives and experiences are often kind of overshadowed by industrial experts that have kind of more cachet in the media and how it can be difficult to kind of represent community stories well in journalism. And I thought it was a really interesting perspective that I hadn't heard before. So definitely give it a listen if you're interested in learning more about these issues. That's great. I love that recommendation. Uh, so Victoria, let me turn to you. What's on the top of your stack? Sure. So I will recommend a book. It's not actually very new. I think it was published in 2017. Um, but it's a book called Never Out of Season by Rob Dunn. And it basically discusses the weaknesses of our agricultural system and how at risk we are as things like pathogens can disrupt our agricultural system. And I think this is really relevant to what we discussed today, because climate change could easily put our agricultural systems at risk. And so I think it's good for people to kind of think about all the different ways that climate change can really impact humanity, all of us, um, and start thinking about ways that we can make real change. Great. You might have heard me scribbling notes as you guys were saying those things. These are great recommendations. <laughs> So Molly and Victoria, it's been a real pleasure having you on Resources Radio. I'm so glad we were able to tell folks about this really important work that y'all are doing, you did, and you're still doing on climate policy, air quality, and environmental justice. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us, Margaret. Thank you, Margaret. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.